0: never stops being weird like right after labor day because like you've had a three-day weekend you're walking to the office and it's monday but it's not it's tuesday <laughs> so you're like i'm already behind on everything it's terrible. i
1: accepted a meeting that i couldn't go to because i thought tuesday was tomorrow ah! so that's how well i'm doing
2: yeah no and then like i have a i have a monday stand-up that was moved to tuesday this week and, and we could we all just kind of felt behind because i'm like oh gosh and I don't know how uh, how it was for you, Jessica, but my office was basically dead on Friday. Yep. So, like, I left at, like, 11 a.m. <laughs> so, uh, nice. no, I was allowed. I was allowed. Um, my, my, <laughs> my, uh, but but, but I, I could have left even earlier. Like, I really only had one meeting that I came in for. Like, I literally, like, came in just for one meeting. And and but the place was dead. So it was just kind of like you know, so nothing really got done on Friday. So you're kind of like feeling doubly, at least in my case, I feel like doubly or triply behind because I've had this great four-day weekend, which was awesome. But now I'm like, I don't know what day it is, and it feels weird.
0: Oh, oh my goodness. So I mean, okay, Jessica, I have a I have a professional <laughs> question to ask oh, you. Boy. Okay. So I am here at the University of Delaware. Uh so I'm doing giving a talk tomorrow, but I never I can never like mentally figure out what the rules are when you're working with people in academia. You've worked in academia. Like, yeah, you know, like Christina backed me up on this. Like if you if you're a tech people, you drop the occasional <laughs> F bomb, yep. nobody cares. Right. Uh, but I don't feel like that's the case for academia. Am I well, right? Am I wrong? It-
1: It kind of depends um, on the department, weirdly enough. Some departments are way more swearing friendly. Also, um, faculty are more likely to be okay with it, like especially in the humanities. Humanities faculty, you can probably do whatever you want. But like when it comes to staff or like a business school, business schools, and I know this because I worked at one for, for four, five between four and five years, they they take themselves very seriously.
0: Right, okay. So you would advise, can I say the word f*** tomorrow? Morning, <laughs> your faculty? Would that be okay, do you think? Um, If they're like
1: mostly from the humanities, then probably. Okay,
0: okay. <laughs> but the business schools around don't say f***. I can, I can do that. <laughs> I can do that. I can do that. In case uh, those of you at home have not noticed, uh, Simone is unfortunately not here this week. Uh, we are recording a day early. So hello and welcome to Rocket. I am Brianna Wu. I'm a Democrat candidate for mm-hmm. Congress and a software engineer. Uh, I'm joined today by Christina Warren, who is a senior content manager at Microsoft. Did I get that right, Christina? You did. You did. Wow. It's like Simone saying it every week, just burned it into my mind. And we are also joined here this week by Jessica Dennis. Uh, Jessica, what's your official? Yeah, you have another show when you're not guest hosting for Rocket, like last <laughs> second. What's, what is that? Um,
1: on ruffled feathers, I, I'm, I'm just Jessica Dennis on ruffled feathers. My, my work title is a senior software developer, which I get by
0: virtue of being old. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's why they changed it to like full stack, you know, instead of
1: just old. Oh, I am not full stack. I want Uh, the back end of the stack to stay like far away from me. <laughs>
0: That's a good policy. That's a good policy. So, yeah, Christina, what would you do with your Labor Day weekend? What would you do? I went to PAX, which was really fun. You went to PAX? Oh, my God. And I How had a ton of fun. Like? It was yeah. really fun. I had a lot
2: of fun. Um, uh, some, some great people at the Bethesda store gave me some pants that are fallout <laughs> pants, like fallout yoga pants. They're amazing. They're, like, really loose what? and comfy. They're, like, fantastic. They, they sell them on their website, and they're really great. But uh, they had them there, too, and, and a friend hooked me up um and uh yeah i got to play some games Um, uh, a lot of in- cool indie titles i had a lot of fun it was really really good
0: okay okay so wait I, they didn't have yoga pants in the 50s as i understand it <laughs> yeah, i mean <laughs> so, these aren't like, yoga pants yeah, they're like loose yeah. they're just like they're like okay. around the
2: house like lounge pants they're just great they're just okay, super I comfortable that. i would love it i
0: love that are you, or Do you play Bethesda games at all? Is oh, yeah, like I play Fallout,
2: you know, sometimes, but yeah. So uh, and, and then I played the new uh, Wolfenstein. They, they had that. Um, oh. uh, and that was really good. I mean, I only played, like, the intro or whatever, but it was really fun. And yeah? the graphics yeah. were really good. Like, uh, the story I could tell, I, I could get immersed into it. I really enjoyed it, so...
0: They, uh, there was a clip that went viral of uh, two of the Nazis talking about how, you know, it's like basically they were talking about how the uh, the people fighting the Nazis were not tolerant of all ideas. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Burn. I thought it was too good. Was too good. So, awesome. Well, uh, so this week, you know, I, I was thinking about this before we started the show. It feels like every year Rocket does this. Where you know you've got the the real you've got the Taylor Swift that you're there to see, right? Right. But then you've got the cover band that comes out before Taylor Swift, and you know maybe you're not so excited. Like they're they're a perfectly good band. I'm starting and to feel really insulted. To, Let's see like, where this is going. And they're a good band, but you know you want to get to the main show. So today we're going to be talking about the uh, the Samsung Galaxy Note Eight. <laughs> That's oh, actually a really good segue. <laughs> All right, excellent. Which, yes, <laughs> just came out. Uh, you know, it's right before the iPhone event, which was uh, announced. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're gonna have a big event on the on the twelfth. But yeah, uh, so yeah, you know, the big question before this phone came out is, can Samsung like land on their feet after mm-hmm. the phone's unfortunate history of exploding <laughs> randomly? And uh, Jessica, let's start with you. You're a you're an Android fan gal. What do you?
1: Uh, well, I mean, I'm wearing a material T-shirt right now, but <laughs> I. So my hist- history with Android is I used it for about a year in 2010, and I was so burned by Samsung and ATT and t and the Android environment at the time that I've been like violently anti-Android ever since then. Like, I want nothing to do with it. Not physically. Uh, Right. Oh yeah, just no. in <laughs> this case, okay. this. No, was well, well, we were. To, well we really well we have
2: to ask though, because like unfortunately it's like a real concern. But yeah, go on. So. Right.
1: Yeah, <laughs> this was in the pre-exploding era when they just kind of sucked a little bit. Um <laughs> yeah. So like not only do I not want an Android phone, I do not want a phone that's the size of my head. I'm <laughs> like I'm like fairly tall, but I have tiny little hands and like I can barely heat wrap my hand around an iphone uh, seven plus like every time i go to the apple store i pick one up and kind of giggle at how ridiculous it is in my tiny little hands so like i am not the target market for this i mean i do funnily enough my first couple of um, smartphones did have a stylus and i kind of sometimes miss that a little bit but not so much that i'm willing to have a phone that's like the size of my entire
0: face yeah, I feel you. I feel you. Uh, Christina, what do you think of it? Like the, the reviews have come out. They're not earth shaking, but they're generally pretty solid. No, I mean, what I mean, do you think? I yeah. mean,
2: I feel like they made a good phone. You know, it feels like it's an iterative kind of update to what they came out with last year. I can't say it enough. It's a real shame that, you know, the the Galaxy Note 7 was was such a disaster because it was a really good phone, especially at that time. You know, I think a lot of people even were saying last year that that was the phone that was in some ways better than an iPhone and and, and mm-hmm. could really kind of go head to head with it. Now, I personally wouldn't agree with that, but I think that that honestly it had a good camera, had good great battery life, amazing screen, et cetera, et cetera. And this year, you know, they've kind of done the same thing, but they're kind of, you know, taking some of the design elements from the the Galaxy S8, um, adding a stylus, adding, you know, some other kind of software features. But I feel like, you know, the jump between the 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 S8, the S8 Plus, um, and 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 the the Note 8 um, is pretty minor, especially since the Note 8 is very expensive when compared to to the s8 and so you kind of saw that in the reviews you know where everybody's like it's pretty good you know they didn't make a bad phone but it's not anything groundbreaking necessarily and 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 that's sort of a problem i think for samsung because you know we're all expecting apple to release you know people can quibble over whether it's really groundbreaking or not and that's a fair criticism to make but you know but but apple is about to release something um substantial you know a a big change and so of all the years to not be exciting this is like the worst Mm. year to kind of be you know status quo if that makes any sense
0: yeah, it does. You know what I can't figure out is, like, from the specs? You know, last year's, the the exploding version of the <laughs> Note 7, the, the Note explosion, uh, that version had a 3,500 milliamp battery. Yes. And then, in this year, like, they, all the reviews note this, so like, it's down to a 3,200 milliamp battery. As if it's, like, those 300 milliamps were the reason the old one was exploding. Right, right, <laughs> right? right. Like, it like no, it's it not, is- it,
2: it, yeah that had nothing to do with it like in in, in samsung's you know um uh the, the the they had other groups you know look into it i mean the in the first case it was it was using a bad battery um component, and then in the second case it was um they were in such a rush to make the batteries they made that there were some deformations and and so you know in either case it wasn't the size uh per se that did it so you know but but I feel like everybody still kind of instinctively feels like, oh well. You know, uh, <laughs> let's le- le- better safe than sorry. I mean, for, from right. the, very, for, at the very least, from an optics perspective, right? I think it totally makes sense to say, and and this is not, you know, as big of a battery as as, as the Note Seven, and and yeah. and and, and we, we we promise this one's not going to blow up because, like I've said on previous episodes of Rocket, Samsung can never have an issue like that ever again. Like one-off <laughs> things, you know, th- that happen because it happens to all devices fine but they can never have an issue like that again otherwise I I don't know if they'd recover they've recovered this time um but I don't think that they would recover again and so it it, it's funny that they've had to like take that route of saying okay we're gonna you know make it the specs less good just because we we don't want to deal with the PR fallout you know
0: If, if, if. Right, it just it seems silly. Like it's you know, it doesn't have anything to do with the core reason of why the phone exploded. Yeah, I know three hundred milliamps is not going to really make or break this phone, but it just it, it seems a little ridiculous to me. So my big question reading this is you know, so many of the reviews noted that this is really a version of the note for the mega fans. Right. Uh, particularly with the integration of the Samsung S Pen. And I have to tell you, like if someone I've never owned a note, but I've certainly like you know I've, I've played around with it, and I I don't understand why, you know Apple has not uh, released a version of the iPhone that will work with the Apple Pencil. You know, yes, they have this really great uh, accessory. It really only works on the iPad it's stuck there, but it's, it's really, really well done there. And I just don't understand why they can't make like a, a smaller version of it and, you know, bundle it along with like the, uh, you know, the iPhones, uh, eight plus, I guess it'll be, how do you feel about that?
2: So, I mean, I almost wonder if part of that is kind of the Steve jobs legacy of saying, you know, if you see a stylus you blew it. And it, you know what I mean, but I mean, I'm not even joking. Where, where, how much of that would be kind of a a problem for them to say, um, you know, we've publicly decried this and we've publicly made fun of this, and now we're going to be doing it ourselves. I mean, it was bad enough when when the Apple Pencil came out, right? And and that was years after you'd seen StylI on other tablets. Um, and and frankly, for for years, you'd had you know at that that point. By the time the Apple Pencil came out, you'd had five years. Um, or, or six years or whatever it was, you had five years of, um, you know, um, third party stylus uh, de- uh, styluses, right? And or styli. and so I don't know. I mean, I feel like it, it would be an opportunity for them, but I, I, but I wonder, like, how you would do it. Would you keep the same Apple Pencil, or would you try to make a smaller form factor and what apps supported? And there are a lot of things to take into account. But I, I, I kind of agree with you. I, I feel like there are definitely use cases where it can be useful. I just wonder if part of it is not wanting to have to deal with the inevitable you know million you know think pieces about how Apple you know only embrace you know, makes fun of something and then and then embraces it after it sees its own <laughs> use. you know yeah because there would be a million people who would be writing stuff about, oh, look, look, remember the time they said this and they vowed that they would never do this. I mean, I, I, to me to a certain degree, I almost feel I, I don't think this is true because I've, I've talked to a number of people at Apple about this, but I could almost make the same argument about like why the why, why Mac OS still doesn't have touch support. You know, I mean, I think part of it is that they just fundamentally don't agree with that as a as a user paradigm. But I think part of it too, you know, maybe a tiny, tiny minuscule part, I mean, it would make a better product. I don't think this would stand in the way. But I, I have to think that there are probably some people there who have been so anti that for so long that it would be difficult for them to be on board with supporting, um, you know, adding that feature. And I wonder if a stylus on a phone is the same way where you have a lot of people who had internally said... We're never going to do this. Um, and then doing it would, would, would be a difficult thing to get buy-in on.
1: Yeah, definitely. I, uh, Jessica, how do you feel about that? I think that if those people still exist at Apple, they should get over themselves. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it probably isn't the case that they're making a decision based on tech bloggers might make fun of them for something that they said 10 years ago if they are, that's how, That's a right. terrible decision. Sure, A lot sure. of people would like this. I personally would probably buy one and keep it and use it like not that often, but sometimes, or if, you know, my beloved iPad mini maybe could get a new version with pen support, that would be very excellent for me. Um, it'll never happen. Uh, <laughs> uh, my mini, but, um, yeah, I, I, some people probably really really want that and a lot of people could use it like people who draw people handwriting notes is like a lot faster than typing them on so I'm like such an old that I don't even like dual thumb type on my phone I type with poking with one finger um, so I'm sure some people can type on uh, on an iPhone faster than I would be able to handwrite a handwritten note on an iPhone, but. I'm talking about me, and I strongly feel that Apple needs to be making products for me. Hmm. So in that's, in that sense, which is which is a much more legitimate business decision than some some tech bloggers might make fun of me. By the way, um, right? Oh, I agree. <laughs> so, like, I would totally buy that. I would I would spend a hundred ridiculous dollars uh, at two if you made it rose gold. Um,
0: <laughs> That's good. I didn't know you were all in on the rose gold lifestyle. Oh. We're big advocates of We that are. We're the very rocket. big advocates yeah. of the rose gold yes. lifestyle. Live your best rose gold lifestyle. That's how I feel. Uh no, I agree with you. But Christina, I would I would say I think they would have to like do it in a smaller form factor. I don't think Apple would ever pull a Samsung and like, you know, carve like a like a, a hole inside oh, of no. it and <laughs> lock it in there. Like that's just far too precious for Apple to like waste with just a stylus. But I think they would need to make like a more compact version of it. And you can see them making some case that, you know, maybe it's got an extension on the side of it for. But I would I would really, really like that. I would love it for taking notes. I would love it for working with, you know, omnifocus. I think yeah, it would I just agree. be it would be amazing. So, yeah, uh, you know, we're kind of, uh, or at least I am, going to base these next comments based on the the Verge's uh, review. But I think there's kind of a um, kind of a, a functional, uh, like, difference in philosophy when it comes to camera between, uh, you know, Apple and Samsung. So, you know, Dan Seifert's review of The Verge, he's got uh, side-by-side pictures of, uh, like, what the the pictures are like with the Galaxy Note and, uh, you know, the iPhone. And, you know, if you look at it, I think that most of us would probably agree that, um, you know, the pictures with the Samsung uh, Note are a little bit, they draw you in more. They're they're more saturated, they're brighter. But this is a trick that I find, um, you know, Samsung tends to do. Like Apple's philosophy with the camera is to kind of more accurately put this information in front of you. Like, you know, it kind of tries to accurately... Yes. You know, they're very sure in- what's there. Yeah. Right.
2: They're very into color accuracy. They're very into trying to make it seem as much like the experience as possible. And you're right. Samsung right. has kind of the opposite philosophy where they're trying to yeah. make your photos look as good as they can and not necessarily like what it really looked like. And so you're right. You can see them, they'll, they'll draw you in more, but it depends on what you're looking for. If you're, you know, an, a, a regular consumer, maybe you do want them to be as, as bright or you know as vivid as possible but if you're you know kind of a, fo- a photo nerd you might want them to be as accurate as possible so it just kind of depends on what you value more i think as a photographer
0: yeah definitely. um, you know it's worth saying, like you know Apple does have a lot of tools built into the photo app where you press it, it goes through those processes like adjusting the tone, adjusting the color, super saturating it, you know adjusting the the brightness levels so i I personally would rather have you know the original image as close to you know color accurate as possible and adjust it after the fact but I mean, Jessica, how do you feel about it? I, so
1: I have a white cat and what I really want is a cell phone camera that doesn't make him look pink and doesn't make him look yellow and doesn't make him look blue, (laughs) but makes him look white. Um, and I don't think I'm going to get that. But, like, I, I do agree that I would want the camera to take a picture that's more like what my eyeballs are perceiving because I can add in all that saturation and junk with filters later. I mean, that seems like the job of post-processing. And the the goal of the sensor should be to capture, I mean, to get as close to, the hum- to a good human
0: eyeball as possible. Yeah, yeah definitely. Awesome. Well, I mean... Uh... I mean, I guess that's really it. Just uh, your final thoughts, Christina. Do you think they're going to like bring it knock it out of the park next year? Do you th- I mean, how do you feel like yeah, I don't, I don't
2: know. I mean, I feel like it, it, they've done OK. I just feel like, you know, the all the energy of the room is going to get sucked out next week. And I think that yep. even they have to know that. Right. But I think that it's going to do fine. I think that it probably will will make, you know, the note. Uh, fans happy uh which is which is not a small group of people so good for them on that and good for them on thus far not having any disasters with it um (laughs) but um yeah i mean i but i I feel like anything short of absolutely groundbreaking stuff um there no one's going to be talking about this in a week is is basically the unfortunate predicament that they're in
0: so before we get to the next topic. Oh my gosh. It's Simone De Rochefort. You came onto our show. You made it.
3: Hey, hey Bree. How's
0: the show going? <laughs> it's it's going really well. Uh it's Oh yeah? Like all this is happening in sequential order. It's all it's all going great this week.
3: That's really amazing. You know, I just stopped by uh to tell you about Blue Apron cuz oh, they're good. sponsoring this episode. Yay! They're the number one recipe delivery service. They have the freshest ingredients. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone while supporting a more sustainable food system. And they set the highest standards for ingredients to build a community of home chefs, which is true because it happened.
0: It happened (laughs) to a
3: woman named Brianna Wu. That's absolutely true. She didn't know a thing about cooking, but then she subscribed to Blue Apron, (laughs) and now she's a certified home chef providing for her family. For less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes to Brianna Wu, along with fresh, high-quality ingredients, to make delicious home-cooked meals in 40 minutes or less. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-proportioned ingredients. And by shipping the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe, Blue Apron is reducing food waste. Blue Apron's Freshness Guarantee promises that every ingredient in your delivery arrives ready to cook or they'll make it right. They'll make it right. (laughs) Now I know you're on the road this week, but did you, did you cook anything or can you tell us about the last thing you cooked?
0: Yeah. The last thing I cooked, it was this uh, delicious, uh, you know, fennel dish. So, uh, you know, it was like this rice and, uh, you know, all these wonderful fresh vegetables I just chopped up and it was just freaking unbelievable. Uh, you know, the thing is, like, once I started uh, cooking a Blue Apron, like, I started feeling better because that's how much McDonald's I would eat before. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, yes, yes. As much, I think, I could say that with scientific certainty, that Blue Apron is healthier for you than McDonald's I'm under rush for.
3: It, it's either a very good thing or a very bad thing that I'm doing this right before lunch because – Everything you just said made me want to crawl into the kitchen and into a a Blue Apron delivery box and roll around in fresh ingredients. (laughs) So if you're interested in Blue Apron, uh, you can check out some of the recipes such as summer vegetable and egg paninis with Calabrian chili mayonnaise and caprese salad, soy glazed pork and rice cakes with bok choy and marinated green beans. Skillet vegetable chili with cornmeal and cheddar drop biscuits. They have a ton of vegetarian options. They also have a ton of meat lover options. Garlic, butter, shrimp, and corn with green bean salad and roasted purple tomatoes. Oh, my stomach. (laughs) There's no weekly commitment. You only get deliveries when you want them. You choose how many works for you, uh, and you can check out this week's menu and get three meals free with your first purchase, including free shipping, by going to blueapron.com/rocket.
0: All right. So, second topic tonight. Uh, so, there's been a lot of talk about uh, Google lately, uh, mm-hmm. and more specifically about you know, fears, uh, you know, that they could be holding a monopoly. Uh, you know, last week there was a really—I wouldn't say scandal—but a really big story came out where. Uh, of someone who had been working for a think tank Google had funded for years and years and years. Uh, basically they had come to the, they had written some things saying Google uh, and the power they held was a bit dangerous. And uh, you know, they ended up leaving the think tank uh, shortly after uh, more interestingly, at least to me, uh, was shortly after that, a story came out on Gizmodo from a former uh, re- uh, reporter for Forbes. Uh, this was, uh, how, do you know how I said this? Cashmere, uh, Ca- Ca- Cashmere, Cash- Cashmere Ca-
2: Hill. Cashmere Hill, yeah.
0: Yeah, and she wrote a story, a uh, rather disturbing story, uh about uh being in on a meeting uh back when google plus was a thing uh and basically being told that if forbes didn't add Google's plus one button to the stories it would affect the search rankings. Uh she had not signed an NDA before going into that meeting. She left, thought it was newsworthy, called Google PR and asked them. Uh, they didn't basically deny the story. Put this out, and from her perspective, uh, Google came out later and kind of really pressured Forbes to uh, to uh, take down the story. Um, she also made it clear in her piece that. Uh, you know, that Google, she couldn't be sure that Google had eliminated the story itself from search results from you know people that crawled it and archived it, but she wasn't able to find that. So it really, uh, brought some fears into her mind. Uh, it's worth saying Google since responded to that story. I think their answers for what happened in the situation, I found them reasonable. But I mean, before we get to that, I mean, Christina, you know, there have been a lot of pieces that have come out this week, uh, you're basically wondering if Google has a monopoly, if it has too much power. Like, how do you feel about that?
2: I mean, I think it's a very interesting question, and and it's a difficult one to answer because as there's the story that that you'd link to, you know, from the Verge where they interviewed um, uh, Barry Lynn, um, who had been the head of that think tank that was, uh, you know, that, that left. Um, uh, there's some you know debate over whether or not it was because of Google's intervention or or not the director of, of that think tank claims that, that Google didn't have anything to do with it that it was a personnel issue but it, it certainly looks um, uh, suspect that you know someone is critical of of its of its funder and and then you know the uh, that particular group um, leaves um, the think tank um but he had an interesting, uh, you know, interview with with a reporter at The Verge, and and I, I think that you know when you're thinking about monopolies in in a sense in the digital world, it does become an interesting question because you're essentially saying that the services that we use, whether it's you know, you know Facebook or, or Amazon or Google or whatever, are utilities in the same way that infrastructure like railroads or highways are. And I don't. Part of me agrees with that, but part of me doesn't because. I do think that in a certain degree, Google has a natural monopoly over over certain things. You know, search is a great example. Um, but I don't know if they have a monopoly in in the same sense that, um, you know, what AT and T was deemed to have had in in the nineteen eighties. Uh, moreover, you know, even if I personally think that there are some, you know, maybe there there's some monopoly questions. I don't think that the administration that we're in, and frankly, I don't think the Obama. <laughs> I, but, but but to be very clear, I don't think the Obama administration would have would have uh, been on favor of this either. And neither do I think that the Clinton administration would have been. I don't think that, that the administration is going to look at um, these things, whether they are natural monopolies or, or unnatural monopolies, and and you know put in the the types of, of regulations that would um, make them uh, less monopolistic. If that makes any
0: sense. Yeah, I I think it's worth noting, though, that a real pattern we've seen, I mean, this is with Apple, this is with Amazon, this is with Google, you know, this is with Microsoft to a certain extent, is it, it seems like Yes, consumers do get locked into different ecosystems, but it is a lot more convenient when the phone you buy works with that same company's calendar system, right. that works with their message system, that works with their email system, that works with their music system. And, you know, I'm kind of, you know, playing trying to be neutral here, but I think that there's a, a good, I think there's a reasonable argument out there that if you don't have this kind of large vertical slice of all these different services together, that it's really hard to compete.
2: Yes. yeah, I, And I, I totally agree with that. But I also think that, you know, there are examples of, of services. I mean, it's not, I'm certainly not easy to disrupt and I'm not claiming that at all, but that's not never been, to, 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 you know, from my reading, what monopoly things are about. It's not about whether everyone has equal opportunity, but just can you. And you do see services, you know, disrupt things all the time. So conceivably, you know, Dropbox, I think, is a great example. You know, I mean, yeah. arguably, you know, when it comes to cloud stuff, um, you know, Amazon might have a, you know, might might have a, a sort of monopoly, you know, on books. Someone might want to argue that, and Amazon certainly, in the data center, is is one of the biggest players, if not the biggest player, in in cloud, right? But when it comes to the consumer services that people are actually using. You know there are a number of alternatives. You know you have you have Google, you have you have Dropbox, you have you know Apple's iCloud, you have a million other services that, that can kind of exist together. And I don't necessarily feel like you know the fact that, that Google has Google Drive or, or that Amazon has whatever their you know services has precluded a company like Dropbox, for for instance, uh, from existing. Um, Now, that doesn't mean that they can't, that that it isn't, you know, worth questioning. And and the European Union has because they have different laws than we do. And they basically said that Google has exerted power in ways that have been, you know, um, uncompetitive and and have have broken laws. And and, you know, a lot of that has kind of been around their shopping things and some of their other stuff. And I think you can certainly say that if a service becomes integral enough in a lot of people's lives, you should start looking at how you regulate it. But I think it's a difficult question to tackle. Um, and, And it's, it's, you know, most of our laws, as, as Barry Lynn pointed out in that interview, are written around, not around the digital age, which makes it really difficult to even figure out where to start.
0: So, yeah, I think that's really well said. Jessica, where do you fall on this?
1: I I think the more egregious example from the article was Amazon, more so than Google, um, with the whole thing about them publishing. And I'm like a massive fan of my Kindle. I read like five novels over the weekend. Um because they just come to me on my Kindle and I can pre-order and it's great. And it's super convenient for me, but I do have to think about the fact that I personally am destroying bookstores oh. <laughs> and I really like bookstores in principle, but I don't actually go to them. Um, so I'm, I'm really the worst. Uh, and Google, I mean, Google, I can definitely see the case for their being anti-competitive when it comes to like featuring their sellers or like their advertising partners. Although Honestly, the way, um, but like with the featured search results, isn't that bad because it's pretty obvious what they are. I think it's actually much worse what's happening in the Apple App Store when you search for something and some other app that has bought the name of the other app comes up, like right at the top of your search. I think that's really gross. And I wish Apple hadn't done that. But um, it is, I mean, there's no way I'm ever going to switch search engines, but I don't think that Google has encroached as much on my life as a consumer as, for example, Amazon has.
0: Yeah, yeah, for real. Um, So, Christina, one of the arguments I think that's out there that is really, really, I, I personally find this compelling is the argument that... You know, search is like all this information that Google has is kind of a a public asset. So, you know, Google can, um, you know, innovate within its own services like Gmail, but maybe it's time that just like, uh, you know, from the phone systems in the 90s. You know, AT and T, they'd like built this entire infrastructure system. Maybe it's time for you know them to open up that data to other interested parties to you know provide competing services. So you know, not saying that you know Google can't continue to compete, but they need to uh, give other people you know access (laughs) to this information that they've had. Do you find that compelling at all? Would you find that a decent uh, compromise?
2: Um, I think it's it can be compelling. I think you could make compelling argument out of that. I think that Google for obvious reasons would really push back on that. And and I also feel like there are a couple of issues that I have with that. One is is just from like a, a capitalism standpoint. I don't know how I feel about forcing you know, uh, uh, a an, an entity to do that. I mean, I mean, like you said, if you want to make search a utility in that way and, and, and treat it as such, then that's one thing that the data is being collected that way. But I think on the other hand, what kind of bothers me about that a little bit is that I don't know how Google is storing and anonymizing that data. And I can trust yeah. Google to a certain degree to, you know, do the right thing with the information it has about me and Google knows Everything about me, right? It knows all my searches. It knows all my browsing history. It knows my passwords. You know, it knows my shopping habits. It knows everything, right? Um, But I can, for whatever, I can make the decision as a consumer to trust Google or not trust Google with that information. I'm not necessarily comfortable with that being an open database that other people can use, especially if, you know, because, you know, machine learning is getting so good and big aggregate samples are getting so good. If people could then use it to create, a profile and, and in some ways tie it directly to me. So I don't know how I would feel about that, if that makes any sense. Like to yeah. me a certain a certain degree of that, I can understand the argument, oh well other people should be able to build products off of, you know, the stuff that Google's Created, okay, fine, except that a lot of that data is personal and I don't know if I personally want to want to do that because I don't I don't necessarily know how they're handling it. I don't know how they're storing it. I don't know what they're doing with it. Um I know what Google is doing or most of what they're doing. I know what their goal is, right?
0: <laughs> well, you've also made that choice. Exactly. You have you have said You've said, okay, I'm giving this information to Google and yes, in the fine print, you know, they can sell and do with it what you want, Right. but you have a relationship with them. You have trust or you don't have trust. So if you're talking about like making that a commodity, I think like, I understand like the, the, you know, the open market argument that's involved there. But I think that's really scary with that. It's like, okay, can the government start <laughs> looking at Christina Warren's search, search, exactly. requests, even I mean, though we all know, what even though
2: going. we all know where they are. Yeah, of course it's all uh, Taylor <laughs> Swift lyrics. Yes. Um, but, but no, but, but yeah, no, exactly. I mean, I mean, just to, just today, Verizon announced, I mean, this is so gross, um, and I'm a Verizon subscriber, although I'm about to switch to T-Mobile, precisely because of things like this, um, a new rewards program where if you opt in to letting them have access to your browser history and other stuff, they'll give you a discount on stuff like Apple Music or on concert yeah. tickets or on other stuff. And it's really gross, but at least it's optional for now. Who knows how long that'll be optional, right? I, I'm sure that now that the FCC has removed a lot of privacy provisions, it won't be. But but that just kind of goes to show Verizon is doing that because they're trying to build their own data trove similar to Google's. And they're they're trying to kind of you know have and, and what Bing has and what you know some other search you know providers and and, and ad systems Facebook has, that sort of thing, right? They're trying to build um, their own models for that stuff. And so it does kind of bother me if, if, if another company's data had to be shared in an open market that way. I just, I don't, I don't personally like that idea, even if in theory I could say, okay, well, you know, Google can keep doing what it's doing, but it has to share its work with others. Um, but I just feel like in this case, you know, it's not, um, it's not like building, you know, web browsers was, you know, 20 years ago when there was kind of the Microsoft case and saying, OK, maybe we'll we'll share, you know, certain rendering technologies or maybe we'll be, you know, using the same standards or, or, or whatever. This is this, you're talking about people's data and you're talking about, you know, um, uh, stuff that can be tied directly to users. And, and um, I don't I don't like the idea of that being mandated to have to be shared.
0: Yeah, for real. Jessica, how do you feel about that?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, no. No
0: no no no, no no no. no no no. I no,
1: mean it's no, bad no, enough no. it's bad enough that Google knows everything they know but it's exactly as Christina was saying I trust Google to some extent to know what they're doing I do not trust most other entities and I especially do not trust the government particularly now but also to some extent at other times um to know all the things about me that google knows i mean i use chrome as my primary browser always and i'm generally signed into it so google knows an awful lot about me
0: so uh you know one of the updates that came with the story um yeah, to me, this really changed the way I personally perceived this uh, this story, uh, you know, from Gizmodo about uh, you know Forbes and you know Google trying to remove a story. Um, you know, basically they came out and, uh, you know, they responded, they're like, you know, we've always enjoyed working respectfully with you. Mm-hmm. We had no idea that you had not signed an NDA from this meeting. We dealt with your editor, not with you. Your editor was the one that said A, B and C to us, you know, um, let's go out, have a drink and like talk over what happened. I thought it was very cordial, Yeah, and, I did too. you know, um, for me personally, like when I read the story the first time, the warning bells were going off in my head. Like, where's her editor in all of this? Like, her editor is the one that should be running interference here. Oh, yeah. So, I I personally found every bit of this very credible on Google's part. But I mean, how did how did you feel about it, Christina? So, yeah.
2: So, I mean, as as a former journalist, you know, and somebody who who worked never directly, but you know, I was on the same team as Cashmere, and and I think she's a great reporter. I can kind of say i had been in meetings similar to the ones that she's been in, where you're on editorial, but maybe you do some other stuff too, and, and, and you go into a meeting with the company and they they share something with you on a product standpoint that may or may not be public. And yeah, usually what you try to find out is, is are we under NDA? Is, is is this particular meeting under NDA? Is this under embargo? Or is this something that I can write about? And And ideally, you try to find that out before you go into the meeting. Um, and, and in this case, I mean, she even admitted she was she was still a fairly you know new reporter, might not have known to, to necessarily ask all those questions. I don't blame her for any of this, right? I think that she did all the right things, and 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 frankly, you know, Google responded on the record um, about the information. I think what happened was Google saw the story, they didn't like the story for understandable reasons, and then reached out and they did what companies who don't like stories do, and this is not. A, a, only you know uh, this is not limited to Google. Every major company you can think of, and even smaller companies, when they see a story they don't like, they reach out to the writer or the editor and they try to get something done with it. And depending on how big the company is, depends on and depending on your editorial management, um, depends on what what will be done with it. You know, there was um and and uh, in my opinion, a good editor if the story is accurate and whatnot will will follow. You know, uh, we'll, we'll hold the line and we'll keep it up. Um, but if there was something else going on with it, in, in this case, it seems like there was some disagreement it seems like you know everyone else was under the NDA and so by de facto even though she didn't know that she was under it you know Kashmir was too and so information wasn't supposed to be shared i as an editor would have argued and would have tried to fight to say yes but but after learning this you know the the pr reps from the company commented on record and confirmed these things so they're they you know you you're you're giving a public statement um it, it's a difficult situation. I feel like her editor didn't support her and and basically kowtowed to Google um in in theory, trying to, you know, basically trying to prioritize and, and, and you know put that relationship above the story. Plenty of publications do that all the time. That unfortunately is not uncommon, um, where, where something will come out that a company doesn't like and a story will disappear because the editors make a decision and, and I can understand their position, which is to say we need a relationship with this company. And preserving that relationship is more important than this individual story. It's disappointing from a journalistic standpoint, but it's just business. Um, there was an instance, you know, MTV News recently let go most of its staff after it had kind of, you know, hired all these big name people. And um, Spin had an excellent story kind of about the, 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 the tenure of that iteration of MTV News. And it was revealed that there had been a couple of occasions where artists had been unhappy with content that the MTV news staff had written and it basically threatened their relationship with the network if the posts weren't removed and so the posts were removed um, and and you can you can say well you know from a journalism standpoint that's a that's a really terrible thing to happen and, and you should support your writers and 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 the editors were being pushovers um, but you can also say if, if the relationship is important enough and I don't know what it was to Forbes or, or anything like that that you have to make you know it wouldn't be worth losing a big you know contact like Google over a fairly small story. I, I could see that trade-off too. So I feel like, you know, Google's response was, was good, but I also don't in any way doubt that maybe not that specific PR person, but that someone at Google's team, you know, they saw the story, they didn't like it, and then they did what is their job, which is to try to get it removed, and they happened to be successful. But I think the real onus on this doesn't come down to Google and, and, and what they did, but really comes down to the editor at Forbes who didn't fight harder for whatever reason. Um, to to get to get it taken down. I also don't. I I believe Google. I don't think that they played any role in in clearing the cache. Uh, I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe you know that was um something that, that the the Forbes people did. You know, as an act of good faith. I have no idea. But but I I don't. That that was the only part of it where I was like I I don't think that that was proactively done on Google's behalf to kind of erase it from the internet. I I think that the big thing that they did was that they. They reached out to the editor and probably the editor's boss and said, hey, we had this meeting. This wasn't supposed to be discussed. Can you take care of this? And then there was a conversation that happened on the editorial side. And they decided, okay, well, we don't want to rock the boat here and ghouls is important to us. And, and we have a relationship with them that's more important than this story. So we're going to go ahead and nix it and just say, you know, use, use the guise of, well, you know, um, it should have been more clear. In, in the future, we'll be more clear when when reporters are in the room what is and what is not under NDA.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. My interpretation is, you know, like, they're good editors, they're bad editors. They're editors that have their writers' backs. They're ones that don't. And, uh, you know, I, for me personally, I would read this. If I were working for that editor, I would find another job personally. So, um, Jessica, do you have any thoughts before we close out this topic?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I just think it's weird that Google was so offended by it because they were – like telling, I worked in a marketing department around that time. And this was not secret information. This was was what Google would tell you if you if you set up a consult with them, which is something they were actively pursuing marketing type people to do. So the whole story is a little weird. Uh, I don't think that Forbes should have had to felt like they had to take it down. But then again, maybe the legal department got involved because the specter of NDA was sort of in the air. I don't know.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's absolutely true because, yeah, they they, they probably did in in some ways. You know, if, if if everyone else had signed an NDA and it was kind of assumed that it was blanket for anyone out of the organization, then I could I could see them saying, "Well, actually, you really shouldn't have this up," you know, sort of thing out of technicality, and and you've got to remove it. I mean, legal could have been involved and said, "Oh, we we we've messed up." And again, I think that that becomes you know the the, the real failure there is whoever was you know running that meeting and from from the Forbes side not being abundantly clear with everyone in that room that we're under NDA, that when you have people from editorial there, you're under NDA. I mean, like I said, I always tried to make sure, you know, in my in, in my meetings with, with with companies when they would visit Mashable, you know, in 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 um, a capacity that wasn't an editorial briefing, you know, if they were showing us future versions of a product or trying to elicit feedback or, or sharing other stuff, you know, my first question was always, is this on or off the record? You know, what, what what's what's our status here? Because it was very important for me to know what could be reported on and what couldn't. Um, But, um, I mean, in, in, in in an ideal world, you don't even have those two sides overlapping at all, but that's not always possible.
0: Yeah, definitely. All right, awesome. So, uh, our last topic tonight, yeah, usually for a third topic, we try to have something fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, this week it's going to be pretty serious because we are living in serious times. So, uh, Jeff Sessions, uh, our attorney general, came out Mm -hmm. today and announced that uh, Trump was following through on his plans to get rid of, uh, DACA. This is a very specific, uh, exemption. Uh, basically when you have people, they're undocumented and they come into this country, America, um, you know, sometimes they have kids, uh, that they're bringing along with them. Uh, so, you know, we do have the you know the in the constitution if you're born in this country you're automatically a citizen. But for some of these children they weren't born here. Um but yet America is the only home they've ever known and yet America is their country and you know basically they're at risk of being sent to uh another country. Uh I'm going I want to tell a story about my 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 husband and you know his family that emigrated here from China later. But yeah, you know, looking at this particular story, um, today a lot of tech companies came out and very, very flatly um, you know said they were against this. Uh, you even saw the uh, the head of Goldman Sachs <laughs> coming out on Twitter and critiquing this. And you know, Microsoft, uh, they identified, I think it was, Christina, is this right, 38 uh, employees that have, have these kind of DACA exemptions? Is that accurate? Um,
2: 39 right now is, 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 is right. the number that they know of. That could be, that could be, you know, different. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. there, there could be more, uh, the, right. But, but, but right now this 39, point, this, yes, about 39. 39
0: people. And they came forward and said, you know what, if, um, you know, things come forward and, uh, you know, People try to roll this back and you um, know basically send uh, our employees out of the country. We're going to stand on the side of our employees, which I thought was a, a really brave and bold thing to do. So um, I guess like just starting at the top, Jessica, I want to start with you on this. Like, yeah. I mean, how do you feel? You know, it feels increasingly like tech is put. Um, in a situation where they have to come down on these social issues. You, know, you saw this with Twitter, with All Riot and Gamergate, where they were really put in a position of having to you know, look at content and the meaning behind that content when maybe they prefer to be neutral. So like, when it comes down to you know, these kinds of um, fights over immigration, I mean, how do you feel about tech response today?
1: I think that amazingly, they're mostly doing the right thing. Oh. I, it's. I mean, I. This is hateful bull. <laughs> Sorry for the bleep, but like, it totally is. It makes me want to cry a little, um, and I'm really glad that companies as like Microsoft and Apple are standing behind their employees because, to a certain extent, um, these aren't like H1B people necessarily who are like you know, that are specifically recruited, these, for the most part, these are just regular people who want to lead regular lives. I mean, some of these children probably didn't even know that they were undocumented until later in life. And I think it's just beyond the pale to try to revoke. I mean, the the program wasn't like amazing and awesome and fantastic and perfect. And then to say, like, nope, bye at this point is just, like, really crappy behavior. And I'm really glad that the tech companies that I rely on in, to, to a certain extent, the com- that I rely on in my life, like, for my job that I, you know, rely on when I call 911, are doing the right thing, are standing behind these people who've done nothing wrong.
0: So, I mean, Christiane, how, how do you feel about, like, the general response from, from tech companies? So It was Microsoft. It was uh, Amazon. Apple, Xero uh, yeah. Box, Google, Hewlett Packard, Lyft, uh, Netflix, Twitter. Y combinator, like all of those yeah, sign, yeah. signs even the Y combinator, like, even yeah. Y combinator. Yeah I, mean, the right thing.
2: I, yeah, I mean, I just want to say, like, I'm so proud to work at Microsoft after like seeing you know our, our uh, Brad Smith's response and 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 Satya's you know statements. Like, I, I it makes me feel really really glad that I work at a company where they are taking that strong of a stance and saying we will pay for our employees' legal fees and even saying you know to to NPR. Um, let me find uh, the quote. I mean, this was kind of extraordinary on NPR. Um, Earlier um, today, uh, Brad Smith, um, who, who's general counsel and president, basically said that if the government moves to deport Dreamers who are Microsoft employees, it's going to have to go through us to get to that person, and 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 I mean that's that's extraordinary, and even even going as far as to say, you know, that the the tax bill needs to be put aside. Um, and that this legislation needs to take priority. I, th- I think it's it's amazing to see, but it's also kind of what's interesting to me. I'm so happy to see tech, for once, really getting the right response and really taking this mm-hmm. concentrated stance. Again, as you said, Jessica, these aren't and and you know these aren't H one B cases. Like the, these aren't people that were sought out to come over. These are people who, as you said, most of them probably didn't even understand you know what what their what their legal situation was until they were much older. But they've only known. America as their country. They pay taxes here. They work here. They went to school here. They have families. Um, you know, th- their lives are here. They are Americans, and and so you know, I think it's great that the companies are, are standing up their employees. I will say that I'm a little disappointed that my former industry media hasn't been as vocal about this because I know there are journalists, and I know there are yeah. people at media organizations who don't, you know, who, who are dreamers as well. And, and I would like to see a more united front. I mean, again, you see Goldman Sachs saying saying things, you know, this is, this is both the the right moral thing to do and the right financial thing to do. It's, it's bad on every level. You know I mean? The the only reason to, to push for, you know, um, deporting these, these people from our country is is xenophobia. That's it. Because it's, it's bad for the bottom line. It's bad for morale. It's just, it's bad. It's just, it's bad policy. And, um, uh, I, I would like to see other, you know, industries who have a lot more people, perhaps, who are dreamers working for them, you know, standing up as well, because I think that that's the only thing that might get through to Congress is is having kind of this pushback from major companies who are going to be saying, you know, we don't support this and we will be fighting you on this and there will be legal challenges and it will be expensive and it will be time consuming. You know, um, if, if at this point, the only thing, you know, that, that can happen is, is, is quick legislation on this, but I, I don't have any... Any real hopes of, of that happening, okay.
0: unfortunately? Yeah, I don't either. I don't either. I think, you know, for me personally, it's it's hard for me not to see this fight going down. And think about my husband. You know, his, his parents moved here from China in uh, 1962. And, you know, if you get my father-in-law, if you get a little bit of line in him, he'll start, mm-hmm. you know, opening up about what that time period was like for him. You know, he would, he would see people out, you know, starving to death, um, you know, and his, his dream was to come to America and, and make a better life for himself. You know, he emigrated here. He uh, became a professor. He got a PhD. He worked for the state for years. He really, you know, served, uh, you know, served Connecticut in education. And, you know, he had uh, three children. Uh, you know, Frank's sister actually died. Uh, she drowned and Frank was the last person I ever saw her alive when he was 12 years old, you know, but he, um, what, what, what really I find interesting is I look at my husband. And, you know, Frank is someone that's as American as you could possibly get. He drives a Dodge Challenger. I was going to say. Right. <laughs> like, you know, he loves bad movies. He's like a science fiction nerd. He loves Star Trek. He's, you know, he he became a Christian uh, when he was, I think, 17 against his parents' wishes. They were very, very against that. Like, you know, Frank's parents came here illegally, but it's so easy for me to, like, read about this and see my husband in that same situation. Because when Frank talks about, like, his dad dragged him to China sometime, and he's just like, I don't know what the frack is going on here. Like, it, was, it was very uncomfortable for him. And, you know, sometimes, like, we'll be out having dinner, and, like, people come over to him and start speaking Chinese, and he doesn't speak that, and it's very uncomfortable for him. And you know, it's just it breaks my heart to think about some kid where this is the only country they've ever known and being, you know, sent to Mexico, right? Like that would be really weird. It you know, children should not have to pay for the sins of their parents. And it's like you said, Christine, like the only reason for this policy is like the institutional white supremacy we are mm-hmm. seeing from this president so it's just it's it's evil and i i think the bar is high but in my opinion this is i i think it's the most evil thing trump has done yet so uh.
1: yeah like i don't throw around the word evil that much because it's kind of cartoonish um but this is definitely evil it, it is called for yes. at this point
0: yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, any last words on that or do you want to close out? I think we close out. I, I don't know what it
2: loves, but it to say. Yeah.
0: Very sad story.
2: Awesome. Christina, what are you doing this week? What, are uh, you getting down- what am I getting down with? Um, well I, am uh, shooting a, the speaking channel nine as always. Um, so that show comes out on Fridays and that's always fun. And, uh, I'm trying to avoid the heat because it's hot right now in Seattle and it's ashy because, you know, climate change is not real guys, except, (laughs) except uh, when it really, really is. So uh, that, that I'm, I'm, I'm like, it's so hot right now. It's, it's, it's very uncomfortable. Seattle. I I thought, I thought, I thought this place was supposed to get cool and, but, but but that's clearly not happening. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Taylor, I got to ask you before we close out the show. Like we got last particular show, we talked about, you tell your new song and then she boom, comes out with like another a, one,
2: like a bolt from heaven. Oh my God. This, and I love it so um, much. I want your, I want your take because she definitely, yeah, it's ready for it. It's on Apple music. I really like it. It's very, okay. it's very, um, Ellie Golding actually, you know, like it, it definitely has like a, a couple of EDM drops, you know, like it's, cool. it's, it's good. It, 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 it has a great chorus. Like I love it. I, I, I like it a lot better as a song than, than look what you made me do. Um, yeah? I, I'm very excited. I'm like, I. I, I heard that. I heard it. And I was like, "Oh hell
0: yeah, Taylor! Oh. Taylor's back." I okay, love it. I gotta listen to this as soon as I get off. So, are you a Tay Tay fan, Jessica? At all? Or are you not, not, not really. That's okay. We love you anyway. No. That's fine. <laughs> if you do, if you get keep guest hosting the show, it will rub off. If you just, <laughs> just let it happen. Yeah. So. Awesome. Jessica, What are you up to this week,
1: professionally? Uh, well, I'm not recording an episode of Ruffled Feathers, but I have recorded many of them. So if you wanted to go back and listen to them, you could do so at ruffledfeathers.xyz. Um, I have been doing weekly game reviews because apparently I can't let that world go <laughs> um, at uh, games.jessicadennis.me. basically Where are
0: you playing
1: right now? Uh, I, you know, oh man, I'm so glad you asked because I really wanted to say that West of Loathing is like the most amazing game and I love it so much and it's just fantastic in every single way um, it doesn't have fancy graphics I'll admit <laughs> it's, it's animated stick figures but the writing is so good and there's so much to it and it's $11 and I've sunk like probably 30 hours in it into it which is unheard of in fact I've got two games going right now <laughs> on oh, two different gosh. computers because I've got one where I've done certain things and then I wanted to do different things in a different so and like I'm like not a real gamer, but this game. is you're, real an AV. Gamer. If, you're <laughs> if
0: you have your own game review site, you're a real gamer. I agree. For me. Yeah. Uh yeah, I'm playing uh I'm playing Mario uh versus Rabbids Kingdom Battle or whatever that is on Switch. It's really weird. Like Christina, I don't know if you know this game, but they took XCOM. And they made XCOM with, with the Mario license and threw like Ubisoft Rabbits in there. It's a really weird game, but it's good. Uh let's see, today I am here in uh Delaware and giving a talk at the University of Delaware tomorrow. And they told me when I agreed to do it, it is gonna be on C-SPAN. So awesome. I think that's what's gonna happen. So that's very exciting. Uh and I feel like there's more stuff that's going on this huge. Oh! Oh! This is really exciting, guys. This is this is awesome. So, uh, my campaign—you know, like we can—I can like go to powerful business interests and ask <laughs> them to like give my campaign like to form a pack, so I can get unlimited corporate money like funneled to me, like most politicians do. But I had this really great idea. I figured out this loophole of how you can order Star Wars tickets today. And that is, we're having my campaign, we're renting out an entire theater twice on Star Wars opening weekend, and we're having a fundraiser.
2: Oh, so that's so cool. nice. Isn't
0: that awesome? So like, um, so when the Star Trek uh, premiere comes out, we're going to be having this big, huge block party with a lot of progressives, because I think it's time like we Star Trek and that message on the air again. So we're going to be having a big fundraiser with that. And we're also going to be throwing a really big uh, fundraising uh, opening weekend for The Last Jedi. I'm pretty sure tickets for it, like we're only going to charge like $25, which is not that much. Much above like, you what know, normal ticket price is. So if you are in Boston and you want to like go see Star Wars on opening weekend in a really awesome theater with a bunch of progressives, uh, you know, go to uh, BriannaWu2018.com, get on our mailing list, and uh, you know we'll uh, we'll have information going out about that. So it's exciting. Uh, yeah,
2: Christina, where can people find you online? You can find me at Film underscore Girl on the Twitters, the Snapchats, the
1: Instagrams uh Jessica where can people find you I am at Jessica Dennis <laughs> okay on, uh, on Twitter I guess Twitter. I'm oh I am on Instagram and my username there is m-c-d-a-g-r-l mm-hmm. which is yes I know it's monster girl and yes I bought two monsters in a row and but there's a boring story about that
0: <laughs> that's awesome that, that's awesome oh. <laughs> I love it that's acceptable that's acceptable <laughs> uh I am spacecatgal on Twitter I'm what Simone says at this point like look listen go rate and review the show because if you don't christina's gonna be disappointed exactly so, 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 so rate, yeah. rate,
2: rate, rate us an apple podcast or favorite podcaster please yeah. give yeah. us a rating because we really really love you hop
0: to it like christina wants to read that you don't want to let down christina warren so <laughs> <That's Awesome. true. laughs> this episode of rocket is terminated
2: terminated terminated